Now, before you say, he skipped the 144,000, which is in the first eight verses of Revelation 7 here, and a point of great curiosity in Revelation. We will come back to that number, those Jewish believers. Later, when we get to chapter 14, that number will be referenced again, and so I want to come back to the first part of chapter 7 when we get to chapter 14. But here in the passage that Bethany just read us, the, the, the last nine verses of Revelation 7, we're taken into heaven, and this happens often in Revelation. It happens in the early chapters, it happens in the, in the late chapters of Revelation. It happened back in chapter 4, a chapter we did not look at. It happened in chapter 5, a vision of heaven. We did look at chapter 5 last Sunday. Heaven being the home country of God. But the vision of heaven grows in Revelation. You get these in and out moments in heaven. They're not parenthetical. They're not incidental. It's not like it's a cutaway. It, it's very much how the interaction of, of heaven, uh, the abode of God with, with all that's happening here to us and with us, heaven grows in Revelation. Because now in chapter 7, again, we didn't look at chapter 4. We did look briefly at chapter 5 last Sunday. But in chapter 7 now, how has it grown? Well, now in chapter 7 in the vision of heaven in this chapter, you get redeemed people there. People from every, verse 9, nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. If you go back and look at chapters 4 and 5, visions of heaven there, what John sees is angels, innumerable angels, and then four fantastic creatures and 24 elders around the throne worshiping the Lamb, casting their crowns, the Lamb being Jesus. But now in chapter 7, John is given another look into heaven, and this time he sees the redeemed population of heaven, innumerable, glorified human beings, resurrected bodies. And now the angels and the 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 creatures and, and the elders that we saw in chapters 4 and 5, now they're responding to the praise initiated by glorified people. What does this tell us, class? What this tells us is, is that a vision of heaven is incomplete without the people of God there. It's awesome to see the angels and to see these four living creatures, whatever they are, and these 24 elders, and yet the Lord wants his people where he is. And now we see us in verse, uh, in chapter 7 in these verses. As I've said to you many times through the years, the Lord is not a reluctant Savior. He's serious about his own joy, and his people are essential components in this. Now, I've told you the last couple of weeks we've been looking at Revelation. If you're just joining us, it's our third week in this book. We're going to take about 10 Sundays or so. We're not going uh, through every passage, but we're just trying to get a, a picture of what this is about. And, and, and Revelation gives us ends, plural, and beginnings of ends. And Revelation takes us in and out of, of heaven by way of John's visions of it. Again, early in Revelation and again toward the end of the book, we come back to it. And in some ways, we should read Revelation like sheet music, like a song, musical structure in which you keep going back over the same notes. 
the song repeats. And the song in Revelation is not Jesus wins. Oftentimes, Revelation will be summarized, Jesus wins. But when Revelation begins, Jesus has already won. Jesus is already glorified. So the message of Revelation is not Jesus wins. It's already won. The message of Revelation is we win in the end. The church wins. That is, the church gets glorified in heaven, a real location, the home country of God. The church gets to be there despite her flaws. Whatever sets against us in each generation and culture, the church will make it to the glorified end awaiting us because Jesus has won. That's Revelation in summary. It's also heaven in summary in that heaven is our glorified end. Because it's a glorified end, it's an end that feels like a beginning. It's, it's the way music works. Don't look at the praise here in chapter 7 and think heaven is going to be one long church service. I would not look forward to that either. Though I, I'm here, present, and I love our worship services. But heaven is human life and love perfected. And experience now in that perfection, unbroken fellowship with God, undimmed presence of God. And we can take it. We can be there and be fully human for the first time in his presence. The continual praise that we see in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 that I mentioned earlier, and here in chapter 7, and later when we get to chapters 19 and 21, it's picturing the perfection of actual human life, actual human experience. Heaven is an end, but it's a glorified end in that there's, there's nothing beyond it. And so it's an end in which it always feels new every morning and and yet everything will be forever familiar to us there. It's, it's not repetitive. It's not competitive. But it's an experience of renewal. It's, it's the experience of renewal that never fades, never gets old. I mean, you know there's a difference between aging and getting old, right? I like Peter Kreft's thought on our age in heaven Kreft says the heavenly age is no age and all ages at once. Think about that. It blows the mind it's supposed to. We'll be nothing like we are now and at the same time, just as we are now, but glorified versions of ourselves. It's meant to be mind-blowing because for now, it's like the world is under fluorescent light. I don't know about you. I mean, if you make your living from fluorescent light, fine. You don't like fluorescent light. It's not going to be our first choice, typically. It's more of an institutional kind of light, right? I mean, we like lights like, like these lights. The Lamb himself, we'll see in later chapters, when we're there in heaven, the Lamb himself is the pure light of heaven, and we get an experience of light and life there like we've never known, and yet we'll know then that we've always wanted to know this. It's completion. So with this in mind, 
We're looking here at Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17, and I'm calling this the culture of heaven because the people are there now. And also keep in mind again that chapter 7 is giving us a view of heaven that builds on the view that you got earlier in chapters 4 and 5. And then later chapters, 19 and 21, will build on the vision that we've got here in chapter 7. For instance, in chapter 21, heaven is presented as a city, capital C city, in which there's some continuity between our present human life immersed in culture and commerce here and also there in some way. We'll get to that later in that chapter toward the end of Revelation. We'll, we'll bring Isaiah 60 into our considerations when we do. But today in chapter 7, let's look at things as we have them here from two angles. What the culture of heaven is made from and what the culture of heaven is made for. That's what we're going to look at as we go through these verses in Revelation 7. We're not going to go through verse by verse, just kind of looking at the passage and, and getting the feel and the flavor of it. We see what the culture of heaven is made from, and we also see what the culture of heaven is made for. First, what's the culture of heaven made from? What's it made of? It's made of someone from everyone. You see that? The culture of heaven is someone from everyone. See it again in verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in the white robes and the rest of it as it follows. Now I've mentioned to you that a lot of the heavy imagery in Revelation, just about all of the heavy imagery in Revelation, has Old Testament precedence. That is, you can go back and find these, these images in places in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets as they ministered in their day and time. And so uh, knowing that, when you look at multitudes innumerable here in verse 9, see it, a great multitude that no one could number, what kind of ding, ding, ding happens in our Bible study brains, well, we go back to Abraham. Wasn't this the promise that was given to Abraham way back in Genesis? It is. God promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12, descendants innumerable. What did he say to him? Through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's eons ago. Jesus, centuries later, the New Testament tells us, the apostles take pains to tell us in the New Testament, Jesus is the embodiment of that promise. That there was a, 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 a genetic host of descendants that could not be counted from Abraham, but that always looked beyond itself uh, spiritually to descendants through the one born ultimately of Abraham, Jesus. So in Revelation 7, we have this echo from Genesis 12. After this I look, verse 9, Revelation 7, verse 9, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. Please note when you look at this that the culture of heaven is not sameness. It's not one big indistinguishable mass of humanity. He's looking into heaven, and what does he see? He sees recognizable ethnicities. People still 
what they were here, what they are there and as far as appearance. But the divisions are gone. This is the community of heaven, including divisions within ethnicities, not just between them, but there's, there's no more class distinctions that affect and infect cultures now, both class distinctions between ethnicities and class distinctions within ethnicities. Why are we there, looking at verse 9, why are we there still ethnically who we are here? This tells us it's not just humanness itself that's sacred. The image and likeness of God applies to every variety of human being. I don't know if they still teach it in, in children's ministry, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. The culture of heaven includes every variety of human being recognizable in their varieties. This is what it's made from. And so while there is one human race, we do think in terms of ethnicities, plural, races, plural. Just like we think in terms of genders, plural, two genders, male and female, equally bearing the image and likeness of God, but not as copies of one another. Male and female are not the same kind of, of human being. This is not a men is from Mars and women is from Venus kind of a, tri a trope here. But race and gender are both sacred. And the reason is because both are essential to being human, but not in the exact same way. Ethnic differences among color lines is superficial. By superficial, I do not mean artificial. Superficial means surface, skin deep. But red and yellow, black and white, all equally human along the color continuum. Gender differences are not superficial, but fundamental. Male and female are equally human, equally vested with God's image, but gender makes for fundamentally, it's a fundamental difference between human beings. So the church... Both now and when the church is glorified, the church is someone from everyone. Both genders of someone from everyone. Both genders loved by God, desired by God, valued by God, redeemed by God. Someone from everyone, all types, living forever in God's home country. And I haven't, even, I haven't even mentioned how we should regard forever, not as timelessness, but as the perfection of time. Given who human beings are before God, both now and forever, let me just reiterate the point and try to put a fine point on it. Race and gender are both sacred. So if race is sacred then racism in practice desacralizes race because racism makes superficial differences, skin deep differences, fundamental. There's no fundamental human difference between ethnic varieties of human beings. But just to complete the point, if, if gender is sacred, then an LGBT expression desacralizes gender because the fundamental difference between male and female is being made superficial. I know that sounds real philosophical, and some of you have been eating donuts, and it's really hard to follow. So let me say something really simple. 
Remember what one of my old professors told me? Three things will surprise us in heaven. Who's there, who's not there, and that we are there. But if we're there, it is because God has forgotten our sin. And this he says he does for any who approach him through his son. Regardless of national origin, regardless of of race or gender, though race and gender are sacred. That's what he says he does for us through his son. He forgets our sin. He doesn't hold our sins over us, whatever they may be, whether it's self-righteous sin or unrighteous sin. To say less than that or to try to hedge on how generous and abundant God is with his grace is to not preach the gospel to people, all people, indiscriminately, which we're supposed to do. The ultimate difference between the saved and the unsaved has nothing to do with race or gender. It has everything to do with whether we're willing to step into what God remembers and ref- or refuse that and in order to hang on to what he forgets. Scripture says he remembers that he's forgiving and gracious. And it says that he forgets our sin, that he separates us from it as far as the east is from the west. The difference between the population of heaven and the innumerable number from every nation, tribe, people, and language that are not there, it's not that we were smarter or more moral. Your morality will damn you if it's self-righteousness. The difference between the population of heaven and the rest is those there experiencing the undimmed presence of God, human life and experience fully alive, perfected. The difference is those who get to experience that stepped into what God remembers and released to him what he forgets. We don't hold over ourselves what he doesn't hold over us. And this is why, as we have it here in our passage, going on in the passage now, heaven rings with energy for God. It's something you want to be in on. It's like a, if you've ever pulled for a long-suffering team, and I have personal experience with this for 50 years. If you've ever pulled for uh, the, lovable, the lovable loser, you know, the team that could just never quite get there, and this comparison fails on a lot of points, but it's, it's, it's like a, a stadium filled with all those long-suffering fans. Someday I will stand in the Mercedes Dome in Atlanta and I will watch my beloved Commodores play in the SEC championship game. I've got about 25 more years for that to happen. Surely it will happen. And I will, oh, I can't believe this. It's like a a stadium filled with long-suffering fans hungry for the championship and the home team that looked down the whole game finally hits the walk-off home run in the last at bat in the bottom of the ninth and the place goes nuts. And if you've ever been in a place like that, you don't forget it. It is 60-some-odd thousand people. We win! And those fans will talk about that, how that stadium felt that night. They will talk about that for the rest of their days. They never get over it. In fact, when I'm in a crowd, 
that's cheering. When I go to a, a, a sports venue and, and, and it gets really exciting and people are cheering, I, I, I always now say, if I could multiply this exponentially, I would begin to get a flavor of how lit and live it will be to hear salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen, verse 12, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen, which means it's true. What the culture of heaven is made from. Now, second and final consideration, what it's made for. What heaven, the culture of heaven is made for. Look at verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? This is an ancient way of teaching. You ask, the teacher asks a question that he knows the answer to, but he asks the pupil. So one of the elders asks the question, and I said to him, sir, you know. In other words, you're asking me the question to give me the answer, so tell me. And he said to me, verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, we're going to get to the great tribulation in another sermon, what that's about. A specifically intensified period of judgment coming. But now we, 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 the, the, sheen, the, the scene has shifted a little bit. In verse 9, John has been looking at a great multitude no one can number. Everyone is in white robes. And then, in verses 13 and 14, these asked about have robes washed in the blood of the lamb and this could mean he's looking at the martyrs there remember we saw them last Sunday in chapter 6 this is chapter 6 verses 10 and 11 remember the martyrs chapter 6 verse 10 they cried out with a loud voice O sovereign Lord holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth verse 11 then they were each given a white robe And told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The population in heaven, what we've established, has someone from everyone. We've established there that people are glorified and yet still recognizable by ethnicity and gender. But everything that's sinful and idolatrous and, 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 and factious about ethnicity and gender is gone. These facts about us aren't aren't just now, but forever. I've tried to establish this, but now let's add to it this, as the passage has gone on, that those who've been martyred for Christ are also recognizable, and the elder is pointing this out. There's mention back in the book of Hebrews of a better resurrection that those tortured for Jesus get to experience. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. Maybe that's playing in here with these washed robes. We all have robes there. That is, we are all clothed with Jesus' righteousness. It's imagery. Whether it's an actual robe or not, I don't know. But the imagery is the reason we're there. Because of Christ's righteousness. But some who are clothed with Jesus' righteousness there also experienced his sufferings. And that's not why they're in heaven. 
Anyone there is there because of Jesus' righteousness and his suffering, but some, even now, to the present time, pay the ultimate cost in witness and faithfulness, and somehow that is also recognizable when we're there. So I think the vision that we're being given here in chapter 7 is you've got somebody from everybody, and they're all recognizable by what they, they were in life, that is, who they physically were, male or female, whatever ethnicity, but they're glorified, they're in their resurrected body. And then he's also seeing those with these washed robes. And the sense of this seems to be that, one thing I know what to do with this is that these are the martyrs and somehow they are recognizable to us in heaven for those being the ones who paid the ultimate cost. What the culture of heaven is for We've talked about what the culture of heaven is made of or made from, and now let's move into what the culture of heaven is made for. And I'll just put it very simply. It is made for the obliteration of human sadness. You can say other things, I know. You can talk about the glory of God, which I do a lot here, but let's take it from this particular angle. We're not just saying it's one thing, but from this passage, as the passage plays out, what the culture of heaven is made for is the obliteration of human sadness. The obliteration of it. It goes extinct. It actually gets cast into hell, which is a, a picture in Revelation of being thrown outside the city, not deep underground, but away from the new heavens and new earth that God is putting together. I remind you again of one of my favorite lines in the Lord of the Rings saga where Sam sees Gandalf and says, I thought you were dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? It will. And when it does, it is somehow then greater for having once been so broken, so lost, so sad in a way I don't fully understand but believe. They have washed their robes, verse 14, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, verse 15, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I'm putting all of this under the heading of sadness obliterated. See, for the longest time, I had the sense of this, probably was given the sense in the fundamentalism of my youth, that this wiping away of tears is because there's this big screen in heaven and all my sins, you know, get displayed for me to watch. And now I see it as God saw it all along and aren't I ashamed? <laughs> yes, I am. And the only problem with that idea is it's completely wrong. My shame has been taken from me at the cross. There are no screenshots of this in heaven. It's forgotten. How far is separated from the east and west? Pretty far. The wiping of tears is the banishment of what has caused every human being such great sadness and distress and anguish of soul in life, which is what? Death. 
This is a place where death is no more. God conquers that for us at the cross so he can then shepherd us through life and deliver us into a forever freedom from all the sadness of fallen human existence. And what's incredible about that is God is completely self-sufficient and infinitely content in his own persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God doesn't need relationship with us. This isn't why he made people. Here in Revelation 7, we have the answer to the question, why then did he make us? To spread among us, to people from every nation, all tribes, languages, what he enjoys eternally within himself. I love Psalm 16, around verse 6. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's had this for eternity. What could possibly motivate, have you ever asked yourself, what could possibly motivate a perfectly content, self-sufficient being with innumerable angels doing nothing but declaring his glory and pleasures forevermore, as the psalm puts it, all around him? What would motivate such a being to create people in his image and likeness? Then risk our going wrong, our going rogue. And yet provide the way back to his happiness to give us a generous share in it by the sacrifice of his own beloved son. Let me think about it on a lesser scale. What is every happy couple doing when they decide to have children? I don't know, they're just having kids. No, you're sending the happiness. Don't ruin this if you're not happy, but... I'm speaking from a happy marriage here. We are sending our happiness, sharing our happiness into the generations to come. That's what we're doing. We want to send our happiness in one another as a couple into the next generation to kids born from us or to kids born to us via adoption. On a far greater, perfect scale, God does this, except God never fails his children never fails his bride. Our suffering tribulation, we get that word here, and it's very specific. It is specific to this great tribulation time. But our suffering tribulation of all kinds, every tribulation of the people of God leading up to the great tribulation, our knowing dark times is is no failure of God to keep his promises to us. He never promised us an easy life here. I don't say that coldly. In fact, I say it quite warmly. As life gets less easy for you, you now have the opportunity to get more of God. I don't know why it has to be that way, but somehow it has to be. And somehow in the glory of that particular place that is our inheritance that we are bound for, somehow the sufferings and the pain of here now make the glory of that place even more so. I wish it were not so. But when Paul says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared, when he says, I I consider the sufferings of this present age to not be comparable to the glories to come, when you're in the place that you were really made for and remade for in Christ, 
It's something else entirely. He never promised us an easy life here. And furthermore, he didn't avoid one himself. He didn't avoid our messy life. He entered it and he took the worst of it from us. God's own son treated as if he was guilty of every wrong thing that exists. For six hours one Friday, stripped of his infinite joy in his own being while he took all of our junk. What kind of God does that? I love the end of verse 17. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what the culture of heaven is for. It's for other things too, but just this one thing. I don't want the email. Well, you left out this and this. Stop. This is what the culture of heaven is for. It is for obliterating the sadness the curtain, the darkness that this present world now experiences, that goes away. He took our infinite sadness so we could know his infinite joy. He shed tears before and during his shedding blood. Remember how he cried over Jerusalem? He took our tears himself. Everything sad does come untrue when we're in the undimmed presence of God. And it's because his victory over death is sure. See, none of this, none of this really matters if you have to wait to the end of Revelation to find out if Jesus won. The reason this is so glorious is because you're told on the front end, <laughs> he won. And by the way, here's what you're going to get to experience because he did his victory over death is what takes us into heaven and when we get there we get to be for the rest of time in the perfection of time we get to be in a context of perfect human enjoyment that's the culture of heaven would you pray with me we thank you Lord for giving us little glimpses that we don't even really know how to contain but we maybe when the next time we're in a stadium and we're celebrating with the crowd the the good fortunes of our team on the field or the court or the diamond and we hear in all that cheering an echo or maybe the next time we hear our favorite song that song we just cannot get enough of we love that song we don't think that we'll ever get tired of that song that we hear in that an echo of a higher country that we're bound for because you're good. And in all your perfections, though not needing us, you chose to include us and to bring us in. And we're grateful. Gratitude seems to pale. And would that we had the tongues of a thousand angels to declare your great worth to declare what you mean to us Father help us in our dis easy distractibility in our preoccupations with so many things that are fading we get so intensely devoted to the moment to the here and the now and while we should be fully present to the here and now, Lord, you've called us to be fully present to it. 
You've also caused us to not be mired by it and to not be snookered by it. We are servants of an eternal king who will make good his claim. May we live in such a way today, here and now, that we're walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received so that his claim on us is good and people can see it. And we have opportunity while there's yet time to tell people about this marvelous inheritance that becomes theirs by way of an exchange. Their sin for his goodness. Their self-righteousness for his perfect righteousness. Their unrighteousness for his perfect grace and mercy. Thank you for being good to us, loving us, and gifting us in Christ. Everything we need now for life and godliness and giving us this vision of what is to come. We thank you and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.